Welcome to the Reop, the biggest news events of the week, dissected by the news team at the HuffPost Australia. This week, terrorism in Britain, with the country on high alert and still reeling after 22 people were killed, among them children, in a fatal blast at Manchester Arena. UK authorities have since made several arrests, as Prime Minister Theresa May warns more attacks may be imminent. And back home, the Sydney Siege Inquest delivers its findings on those fatal days in December 2014. Coroner Michael Barnes identifies numerous inadequacies in authorities' handling of the siege. I'm your host, Owen Blackwell, at the roundtable with... Tori Maguire, Nicolette Logue, Lara Pierce. This week, uh, we had uh, the bombing in Manchester. Uh, Nicolette and Lara were both uh, covering it, Lara, very closely from the news desk here. I think perhaps some um, the most uh, tragic element of Manchester... Uh, was that it was targeting young people who were going out to uh, an event uh, which was meant to be joyful. Mm-hmm. Um, they were young people, they were young young girls, and, uh, you know, that's been a really horrifying part of Manchester. At the start of the event as such, when we first became aware of it, it was really unclear what was happening. There were reports of an explosion, but there were also, as it turned out, wrong reports that it was a piece of equipment that had exploded. And so it was a little unclear at the very start of uh, these events how serious it was. And I I think that those uh, erroneous assumptions have become uh, overtaken very quickly Mm. um, in recent days and the full scale of it has come out. When the first death toll, which was initially 19, was announced, that was really shocking because that was the first time we really got a sense of the scale of the incident. I thought that the media coverage was really interesting in that this time, finally, everyone in the media, in the mainstream media, seemed to take a breath before speculating. Social mm. media was a, just a cesspit of misinformation, which it always is. But often mainstream media is also a cesspit of misinformation. But I get the sense on this case um, out of Manchester that everyone took a breath and I didn't see anyone report anything that turned out to be untrue or speculate on the motives and and the reasons behind it until we actually knew what had happened. Did you, Lara? I think an element of that was the confusion around, I mean, initially someone actually took to the stage and said, look, there's nothing wrong. It was just a technical sound error or something. I think maybe they were trying to mm-hmm. stop crowd panic and people getting crushed in the panic to try and escape. But I think that was maybe an element because some of the initial reports were, were mm. making out that, oh, you know, we may have just been a balloon exploding or mm. which seems crazy now in hindsight looking at the scale of it. Mm. But I think, yeah, that was perhaps an element. I remember the same thing happened um, with the Bali bombings and that was before sort of internet news was a big thing. But I remember initial reports that it was a couple of gas bottles attached to the kitchen had malfunctioned mm. and then all of a sudden we found out although it actually it took a lot longer for us to um, understand the scale of what happened in Bali because it was before social media and it was you know Australian journalists were scrambling to get on planes to get to Bali to find out whereas now you find out almost straight away. And I think certainly um, people were adhering to the advice that was being put out by the Manchester police who were really funneling most of the information through there but that has shifted in recent days. It looks like uh, some of the intelligence that has been um, shared by the UK with its counterparts overseas is now uh, managing to leak out. Mm. And Theresa May 
is absolutely furious, apparently, um, by the um, fact that US news outlets are reporting information that's been obtained through these means um, that uh, you know shouldn't, uh, she says, be in the public domain um, because they're operational matters. Where do you guys stand on this whole debate around um, naming the terrorist? Because um, another media outlet sort of did this incredibly sanctimonious post about we know the terrorist name but we are not going to use it because it's not about his motives and it's not about why he did this. And it's like surely it's really important for us to understand what his motives were and I, why I, he did it. Yeah, look, I think that was an absolutely ridiculous stance to take. Um, we have to learn as much as we possibly can about the causes of terrorism so that we can stop these things um, from happening again. And mm. um, to put your head in the sand and say, you know, the story isn't about him, well, yeah, it really is. You mm. know, we need to, as a society, address these issues um, that are leading to uh, homegrown uh, terrorism. And He was um, born in Manchester. He mm. was. He was. And he's recently spent some time in, in Libya, which was his um, parents' birthplace, um, and uh, had come back to the UK only days before the attack. And and this is what um, has led authorities to believe that it's really a, uh, that he was really operating within a cell or within a, mm. a network, that it wasn't a lone wolf attack. I find in these situations there is always that fine line because the media has been criticised in the past for uh, identifying or uh, focusing some would argue too much attention on the identity of the killer and who the killer is and, and, and the argument is that the victims are forgotten. I found watching this from afar and watching it unfold on social media and in news reports, I, I found the lack of identifying the, perp the perpetrator, it did shift the focus somewhat. The, the stories Because we didn't know who he because was. Because we didn't know who he was. Yeah. It became, I mean, most of the stories were about the victims and they're mm. still coming out you know um so i'm uh, you know as a reporter i'm a strong believer people have to should have all the facts but i'm just i'm still developing my thoughts mm. on, on this just having having watched it and, and reported on a few incidents like this mm. it was it was an interesting uh thing that happened do you think they just personally do you feel the relentlessness of this has started to affect the way you feel about terrorism. But I know personally I have never been afraid of terrorists. I'm much more worried about people driving too fast past my kid's school or anti-vaxxers. Mm. But I have to say, and this was before Manchester, um, on the weekend I did the half marathon, just throw that in there, but I did spend quite a bit of time on that route thinking, God, I hope no one drives a truck into the crowd at Hyde Park, which I've never thought anything like that before. What mm. about you guys? I don't think it has um, – it's something that I guess as a reporter you cover almost – you kind of remove yourself from that situation mm. and you – I don't know, maybe it's part of being young, you don't think it'll ever happen to you. And, yeah, I guess the the number of attacks that have happened in recent years does seem to be increasing mm. and it's something that kind of makes you a bit uh, depressed or cynical about the state of the world but I don't go about – my everyday life thinking, oh, you know, if I'm at a, a crowded place, what if there's a terrorist that's, yeah, yeah. not something. What I'm about expecting. you, Nicola? Look, I don't like leaving my house. <laughs> I, I have. Um, that's why the internet is such a great career for you. That's right. I have um, Netflix and I have <laughs> Earl Grey tea and I'm entirely happy within my house and I don't particularly like crowds. So, yeah. um, look, you know, being out in crowds in, in 
you know, modern times. Mm. Yeah, I could see, I could understand that there's that concern, that, you know, fear possibly. Um, I think probably for me, uh, covering this story, um, what was really saddening was that I wasn't surprised. Mm. The reports came through and I wasn't surprised. And this is, you know, Tori, similar to you, 18 years in journalism, um, you know, covered a, a lot of these events. And, uh, you know, there wasn't that shock that was involved. Mm. It was it was kind of a feeling of, you know, well, this was going to happen sooner or later. It's been a little while since the last one. It's almost due. Yeah. Um, which is saddening. The thing I think that was shocking about it was who the targets were. And I think that that's... They, they seem to be escalating in the sort of level of atrocity in specifically targeting somewhere that's going to have a lot of eight-year-olds. Um, that was the thing that I think was shocking about it. But Nicolette, for the other guys, Nicolette rang me very, very soon after the reports started coming through when it was still could have been a balloon popping or a speaker blowing up. But obviously there was something about it, Nick, that you knew that it was more than that. Yeah, look, I, I would love to be able to give some insight, but it was you know, a gut feeling, it mm. was a spidey sense that this was something that wasn't right. editor alarm rang. That's right, it did, it yeah. did. And, you know, it was un, 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 unfortunate that it um, came out to be, you know, the worst possible outcome. Mm. Mm. Um, terrorism is on a lot of Australians' minds at the moment, particularly with the, um, the handing down of the Lint Siege Inquest uh, coroner's report. Um, now, it's been in the public... Consciousness, I'd say, this week as well, because we had that Four Corners report where where families of seed survivors um, and and victims um, spoke about uh, the police operation surrounding it and stuff like that. Again, Lara, you you were there for the delivery of these inquest findings. Yeah. Can you can you just? I mean, we had a brief chat when you got back about the atmosphere down at that room. Could you talk to to me a bit about that? Yeah, um, I think it was really interesting, you know, there's been so much media coverage, particularly in the lead up to the handing down of the findings, being so, um, just so much condemnation around the failures, you know, why was Man Monis out on bail? Why didn't the police act sooner? Um, and, but at the inquest, it was a bit of a different atmosphere in that there seemed to be this kind of acceptance that this was really the first time that we'd experienced this kind of situation in Sydney. Yes, maybe we weren't as prepared as we should have been, but what can we do to make it better for next time? Uh, and I think we saw that come out with the victims' families and the other hostages who were there during the siege uh, speaking after the inquest where obviously they're still a lot of pain and, you know, what ifs, but let's move on now and let's see what we can do next time. How can we change police processes? Um, you know, should the military be stepping in sooner? Let's look at our bail laws. Um, so I think that was really the attitude coming out of the, the inquiry. It's, it's an interesting um, shift to have to make, isn't it? Because the Four Corners episode on Monday night was just... It was tough watching because it was the first time that um, Tori Johnson and Katrina Dawson's parents and partners of Katrina's brother spoke. And apart from the hideous grief of losing two such, you know, special people, they're also so furious about the way everything was mishandled because pretty much everything that could have been done wrong was done wrong. The way the whole thing was handled was 
it was a debacle from the get-go. And so they've got to deal with that extreme kind of rage that they must feel every single day when they wake up, as well as the grief of losing their, um, you know, the sunshine of their lives. Um, so it must be very tough for them to take that approach of like, well, let's learn now. So what really people are going to be looking to the New South Wales police to do is to demonstrate that they have indeed learnt mm-hmm. and that things have changed and that they will never, ever make calls the way they made them that night and that afternoon and that they won't rely on people who don't know what they're talking about. And also there was a lot of sort of um, PR by the police around that day, like we've got the best team in the world and we've got it under control and we're going to have a peaceful situation. And, you know, they didn't have it under control and they need to demonstrate now, I think, to people that next time they're not going to muck up like this. I think there was also an over-reliance on the negotiators in Mm. that situation where the negotiators were telling the police that they had everything under control. You know, he wasn't posing an immediate threat. He'd settled down for the night. They were, you know, they were negotiating and the police didn't question that. Mm. Um, Even when the hostages came out saying he is about to shoot somebody. Yeah, and I think there was miscommunications there because Mm. the hostages' messages didn't get back to the you know, the line, the first mm. line of defence that were actually making those decisions about whether or not to go in. And the negotiators were basically almost misleading, mm. um, saying that they were negotiating with Manmonis when, in fact, they hadn't actually been able to communicate with him directly yep. at all. And it, so much of this inquest goes to the point that we do have to examine who these people are. I mean, Manmonis's identity and history is absolutely the key to unravelling what happened in the Lint Cafe yeah. and the lead up to it. And so to turn around and say, oh, that we're not honouring the victims by focusing on him, it's a ridiculous suggestion to the point where I don't think I've seen anyone make it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. why would we not have the same level of scrutiny and examination on the person who blew up the children in Manchester? We need to know mm-hmm. who he is, how he became radicalised, who helped him. It was clearly quite a sophisticated plot because that kid did not build that bomb by himself. In Manchester. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, he was probably less of a rogue than Man Monis was who, you know, acted alone. Mm. This kid had help and yeah. they need to find out who helped him. Mm. Those intelligence leaks that uh, Nicolette talked about earlier, the triggering mechanism apparently was so sophisticated that authorities are saying this guy could not have done this by no. himself. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's where the hunt's going for now yeah. is for the bomb maker. Mm. Um, the arrests of um, several family members um, is obviously part of the investigation. But, look, absolutely agree with Tori in that, um, you know, examining the, the background of somebody to determine how they escalated uh, to get to that point is so important. And, you know, our intelligence um, services are, you know, looking for those flags. So, you know, the more we can learn from, you know, the horrendous experience of the Sydney Mm. siege um, and apply that to our intelligence agencies, you know, the better. I think one of the the big things with the Sydney siege as well was just the fail, like it was largely a failure of communication Mm. where you had the AFP had a certain profile on Man Monis, the New South Wales police had a different profile and he was such a a complex kind of case. He wasn't a straight-out terrorist. I mean, even the inquest on Wednesday, the New South Wales coroner said, 
it's still not clear whether he was actually acting on behalf mm. of Islamic State or whether he was just using Islamic State to promote his own ends. Mm. I mean, you've got this guy who murdered his ex-wife. That's not a typical IS mm. terrorist modus operandi. So, And he was so public. Most mm. terrorists don't stand on the steps of the Downing Centre yeah. in front of television cameras. Waving chains. Waving chains <laughs> and write, writing appalling letters to the families of, um, you know, fallen military people. And I think that was perhaps part of the... The problem mm. was that he was so difficult to profile because, you know, the the coroner said he's he's not just a terrorist. Mm. He's also, you know, a criminal and mentally unstable. So, you know, he was quite a complex He wasn't a brainwashed 19-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. I remember on the night, because uh, I, I was down covering parts of the siege, and at some point word started to come through from court reporters, actually, that you know, they recognized. They him. recognized who yeah. it was, and I just, I just remember the shock. You know, like because, as you said, he'd previously been turning up to Downing Street Court, rattling change and chains, and he seemed like you know a run of the mill harmless loon. Yeah, yeah, and he certainly wasn't harmless. But there were systemic failures here as well. It wasn't just the police on the night. I mean, why was he no. on bail? This, this yeah. remains the big question. Yeah, yeah, and also why did you know? Why had he not been referred to ASIO? And we even had the Iranian ambassador saying this morning that, well, we tried to warn you. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, okay, is there any other ways we could have failed in this yeah, case? Yeah. But the thing was he was referred to ASIO mm. repeatedly and ASIO kept reviewing him, putting him on the watch list and then taking him off again. Taking him off. And it wasn't really clear yeah. why. Like, Yeah. yeah. Mm. No, there's a lot to learn from it and, you know, it's a horrifying, a horrifying thing to have to learn from and, you know, to turn it back onto the people who deserve the attention. Those two, like to lose those two Sydney citizens, it's just, you know, it's a loss for everyone. No, like I, no one in this room knew them, but you could tell that they were, you know, they had put a lot of positivity into the world. Mm. So it was just a horrifying way for Man Monis to make his point, whatever his point was. I'm just going to leave you now with some words from Ian, uh, a young man from Manchester who was standing outside a blood bank after the attack. We can react in a lot of ways. We can react in anger. Or we can react by doing, why did I stay in this city for 17 years? This city is a community. I don't care who you believe in, where you're from, this city is for everybody. And we all need to rally around us today to show support. Because they want to divide us, don't they? They want us to turn on our neighbours and it will never happen. Not here.